Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air, and hard to believe the last time uh, when I was uh, podcasting, the Winter Olympic Games were still um, going on. Uh, It was just a couple of days ago that the uh, Games uh, came uh, to an end, and, you know, in 18 days' worth of time, I feel like I was able to watch as much of the Games as I was able to, uh, but, you know, with the games being over, you know, now we've got a, a conflict that's ensuing. Not that the conflict um, wasn't in existence during the Winter Games, but this uh, conflict in the U- in Ukraine that, um, you know, we don't know what kind of resolution is going to come about with it. We don't know um, how it's going to all um, get resolved, but hopefully it will not escalate into something that would... Um, be the equivalent of a uh, world war because I do know that uh, many nations are declaring um, some form of uh, sanctions against Russia. But I'm not here uh, to discuss uh, that particular matter, but it is something that we should just be reminded of as to what's going on in the world now that um, the Olympics aren't um, on anymore. Uh, We will we won't see any Olympics uh, for another two years, being the Summer Games in uh, Paris, France in 2024. But, you know, the Olympics are a way to uh, bring uh, people together, even in the midst of uh, dark times or times of uncertainty. But um, here we are again discussing John Adams, or rather I should say Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800 by John Furling. In this uh, podcast segment... We are uh, going to be um, learning about the election, that is the actual uh, election itself. So uh, let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and uh, get ready to go uh, for some um, relevant information that will um, be of a significant uh, understanding and of a significant knowledge as to why this election will be uh, one of a unique kind for the Republic's early days. All right, well, maybe I already answered the question uh, for you all, but I'm going to just lead off with this um, lead-off question. What's important about December 3rd, 1800? It marked the official day for which voters, that is, those whom are eligible and allowed to vote, because remember, not everyone can vote in 1800, and what I mean by not not everyone being allowed to vote are women, uh, Jews, Catholics, um, enslaved people, um, Native Americans. So there are um, a fair number of people or groups of people who uh, cannot vote. It doesn't make it right, but that's what it how it was in 1800. But thank goodness that over time, and yes, there have been uh, struggles. Uh, to ensure that certain people, uh, regardless of uh, race and um, qualifications, uh, were finally allowed to be uh, given the right to vote. But um, in 1800, there are only um, a certain group of uh, people, most notably uh, white men, uh, whom are eligible to vote. So, December 3rd, 1800 marked the official day for which the voters themselves, 
went about casting their votes for whom would become president, along with presidential electors convening in their own home states to cast their vote by ballot for two persons. Okay, we've got to remember that um, in 1796 and in 1800, the way the Constitution was set up, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, the way the Constitution had it set up was that, um, that each um, elector from his state would be able to um, cast their ballots for uh, two uh, persons. But when George Washington was president, they didn't have to worry about doing that because everybody liked George Washington. They, I mean, he was the one that was, he was the chosen one, the one who um, was just the right fit for being president. So people weren't interested in, at that time in electors, that is, in uh, choosing uh, two uh, persons. So in 1796 and 1800, there are, you know, electors that is, you know, two electors. I mean, you get electors get uh, two choices for president. Uh, where had uh, Thomas Jefferson been uh, residing in Washington, D.C. prior to and around the time of the election? Well, I can tell you this much. He wasn't residing at a... Um, what we might think of as in today's time, like a five-star hotel. However, where he was lodging uh, was, a, it was a well-known place for its time. And it was located on what we now know is uh, New Jersey Avenue, uh, of, of present-day New Jersey Avenue on Washington, D.C. Jefferson had taken up lodging at a boarding house known as Conrad and McMunn's. Sounds like a very fancy uh, place, given if it's, uh, uh, what do you call it, like a proprietorship where there's more than one um, business owner. So obviously, to me, Conrad and McMunn are run by uh, two gentlemen, uh, the boarding house, that is. But uh, that is where Thomas Jefferson is residing. As a matter of fact, Conrad and McMunn's was located not far from the Capitol building. But let's keep in mind that the Capitol building of 1800 is not the same Capitol building that we know today. And we should keep in mind that it took many of years for the Capitol building to uh, become what we know that it is today. Uh, people should be reminded, um, or we all should rather, that the U.S. Capitol building um, was even being worked on uh, during the time um, leading up to the uh, Civil War. Not to get far ahead of the game, but if you do look at pictures of how the Capitol was constructed over time, we should just be reminded of the fact that when it, when um, America's government was relocated um, from Philadelphia to D.C. As, um, as the new location for the nation's capital, we have to keep in mind that not all the buildings that we know today existed at that time. So in other words, uh, the Washington Monument wasn't just built overnight in 1800. That was uh, one of those uh, monuments that was built over time, just like the Capitol building itself was. But nonetheless, Thomas Jefferson had taken up lodging at a boarding house known as Conrad and McMunn's, uh, not, lo not terribly uh, located uh, too far from the Capitol building. But it turns out that Conrad and McMunn's became the place for people in Washington to come to 
regarding all things election news related. So if you wanted to know the latest news or anything that you thought maybe would have led to a hunch or an inclination of of someone passing along the latest of uh, what we think of now as like breaking news, you went to Conrad and McMunn's. And Thomas Jefferson, given that he lodged at Conrad and McMunn's, he um, was able to get a lot of information from uh, political insiders of the time uh, who uh, were uh, getting the latest news leading up to uh, election time. Of course, you know, when we think of Election Day, nowadays it's the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, but we've got to keep in mind that in the early years of the Republic, it was in December. And so any news that would have made its way into Washington before December 3rd, that was a big deal. Okay, well, um, we can find out more about that here uh, shortly, but... um, Here's uh, some sad news, and I may have mentioned this from a previous podcast, but I will have to mention it again because um, I did not know um, until I'd read this book when it had officially um, happened, but I knew it happened um, before uh, election time. But there again, I just didn't realize that it was so close um, to when um, election time of 1800 officially uh, took place. Whom died four days prior to December 3rd, 1800? It was John Adams' 30-year-old son, Charles, whom succumbed to alcoholism. Remember uh, from, the previous po- from a previous podcast uh, a while back, uh, John Adams um, had confronted his son en route, um, I believe it was en route, either en route to Philadelphia or en route to Washington. I want to say it was en route to Washington, yes. He had uh, confronted his son, and his son had already abandoned his family. His practice was in shambles. He had uh, resorted to drinking. And, we, you know, we got to keep in mind that there were no such things as AA centers, um, alcoholic anonymous awareness uh, centers in, uh, in, in the 19th cent- going into the 19th century, or let alone throughout the 18th century. We didn't have those kinds of treatment centers for those whom were um, having drinking problems. But the, the problem was so bad that um, John Adams could not forgive his son for his actions. So sadly, um, President Adams did not have any contact with his son for nearly a year. And not long after Charles's death, uh, President Adams himself had little to say about the matter. Uh, Historians do know that his wife, Abigail, was by her son's side as as he died. One thing I do have to remind myself, um, and I learned about this um, through a book, it it had to do with taverns. And of course, you know, taverns were uh, a place, you know, where men could go um, to have a, a beverage, where men, you know, where people lodged, uh, where people got a fine meal, uh, where business affairs were conducted. But I do know that in Virginia, in colonial times in Virginia, that if one had a drinking problem, the first um, matter of um, trying to resolve the issue would have been for an individual to have met directly one-on-one 
with their Anglican minister. Remember, folks, Virginia? The Anglican Church is the ultimate church, the Church of England, or what we now know in today's time as the Episcopal Church. So the first uh, step towards... Um, the first step towards uh, resolving your uh, issues with alcoholism uh, pertain to meeting one-on-one -on -one with the uh, minister. However, if that didn't work, heaven forbid if it didn't, then the second go-around would have resulted in an individual being sent to the pillory for a day. Can you imagine being sent to the pillory for a day, folks? You know, people looking at you wondering, um, what is it that you have done to not only have cause such embarrassment upon yourself, but embarrassing fellow members of your community, knowing that you uh, stoop this low. And sadly, if that wasn't enough to get your act together, uh, the third go-around would have resulted in expulsion from the community altogether. So each state, even in colonial days, dealt with, um, dealt with those sensitive issues on their own accords. But sadly, we do need to be reminded of the fact that there were no uh, modern-day AA treatment centers for alcoholism like we know that there are today, uh, which is a, a blessing. So, yes, this was a very um, difficult ordeal for uh, John Adams, uh, knowing that um, his son um, could not help himself and that his son uh, had failed to um, be a good... Um, law-abiding citizen in terms of uh, being there for his family, and in the end, he uh, abandoned them. What was uh, one rule in place with regards to electoral balloting procedures? Okay, um, what do you think, uh, I mean, there were obviously multiple rules, but if there was one, what would you all think that it would be? Well, it pertained to um, the following Ballots, or electoral ballots by law, were not to be opened and officially counted until February 11th. My gosh, that's 10 weeks, folks, after Election Day had taken place. Well, we got to keep in mind, too, that, um, you know, in 1800, you know, we got 16 states. Is it fair to say that all the ballots can't just come um, into, they can't come trickling into D.C. overnight? No. Think about it. The westernmost state in 1800 is Tennessee. The northernmost state is New Hampshire. And the southernmost state is Georgia. So we do have to take into consideration that, um, that there are some states where the mail might not be able to make it to D.C. for a few weeks. And think about um, the weather, you know, and if it's snowing, yeah, it's going to uh, make it very difficult for uh, any kind of, um, what do you call it, uh, mail routing or um, mail courier service to even make it through um, what we would call um, snow drifts, let alone. I mean, so weather is going to play a factor in, in perhaps causing some delays in uh, getting... Um, the, all the ballots uh, to where they need to be, but we should also keep in mind that um, that in 1800, election uh, inauguration day is not in January; it's in March. So days before December 3rd, um, residents of D.C. came out 
and said that they knew the vote totals in Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware, that is, electoral vote totals. December 12th of 1800, the National Intelligencer, which was a Washington newspaper, revealed the news that John Adams and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney did not get any votes in South Carolina. Well, I'll tell you, the news in 1800, um, you know, certainly um, is accurate. I mean, they're not reporting fake news. I, I think it's fair to say that uh, that those whom are reporting the news in 1800 are doing their homework um, very well. Of course, you know, the thing about it that back then is that we, we're not getting a thousand opinions, though. We're, we're getting opinions, but we're not getting opinions every minute. So once you got the news, that was what you went by until a couple of days later. Now, what pattern of similarities were evident come election time? Okay, uh, similarities. That, that seems vague, but we could uh, find that out. Both political parties remain split along sectional lines. Okay, sectional, when I think of sectional, how about north and south? With some degree of uh, middle ground, meaning, you know, like middle states, like, you know, Pennsylvania or New Jersey. But sectional, to me, at this point, is, you know, north-south. Well, I can tell you this much, that 86% of the electoral votes that were won by John Adams were chosen by electors from northern states. Okay, when I think of northern states, how about, you know, those electors from New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut. Whereas Thomas Jefferson got three-fourths of votes from the southern electors. Okay, so when I think of southern electors at this time, um, how about, you know, Georgia, South Carolina? How about Virginia? And yes, Kentucky and Tennessee are the two most western states of the 16 states, but, but to an extent, they are considered southern states. So, interesting enough, uh, okay, for John Adams, 86% of his electoral votes were chosen by electors from the northern states, whereas Jefferson gets three-fourths or what we would think of as 75% of his electoral votes from the southern electors. And what was another unique similarity had to do with the fact that more electors stood by decisions from party leaders versus four years earlier. So it seems like now that party um, grassroots organizations are a lot more, um, what do you call it, are more unified as to how they are going to um, do their uh, official uh, business in terms of how they want to go about uh, choosing their uh, candidate. All right, well, let's get into some uh, numbers here. Okay, let's, uh, and this question I'm going to ask you is going to have multiple parts. So don't be overwhelmed, but let's, um, let's go further into what I call behind the scenes. How many states did uh, Thomas Jefferson win all out in the 1800 election? I'll give you a number. It's between five and seven. The answer is six. He won um, the following six states all out in terms of their electoral votes. He won uh, New York, Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, South Carolina, and Georgia. Okay. Uh, 
which of those six states had the most electoral votes? Virginia with 21. And let's remember, folks, Virginia being the largest of the 16 states, you know, think of West Virginia, think of Ohio, Indiana, maybe Illinois, I mean, but most notably Ohio, West Virginia. Uh, so, yeah, Virginia with 21, New York with 12, South Carolina, 8, Tennessee, 3, Georgia and Kentucky, 4. So Thomas Jefferson has won um, 52 electoral votes all out, meaning uncontested. All right, part two of this um, long question is the following. How many states did John Adams win all out in the 1800 election? Well, like Jefferson, he won six. He won Massachusetts, which probably would not come as a surprise given that's where he was from. He won Connecticut. Vermont, New Hampshire, New Jersey, and Delaware. Which of those states had the most produced the most electoral votes? 16 being Massachusetts. And how come Massachusetts had so many electoral votes? Well, there is um, this um, has not become a state just yet, but it is still part of Massachusetts, and that's Maine. So John Adams got uh, votes in what we now know as Maine, uh, the state of Maine that was once considered Massachusetts. So that's why Massachusetts in 1800 has so many electoral votes. It's not so much because of the state of Massachusetts, but Maine, or what we now know as present-day Maine, is part of Massachusetts. Connecticut with nine, New Jersey seven, Delaware three, New Hampshire six, Vermont four. So John Adams has won all out 45 electoral votes uncontested. But now we're going to get into some tricky stuff here. You know, Rhode Island is a New England state, right? You know, Rhode Island borders Massachusetts and uh, Connecticut. What makes Rhode Island different? Well, Rhode Island, for one, for one, has eight electoral votes. Four of those eight electoral votes went to John Adams, okay? So he gets 50% of the electoral votes. But Rhode Island does something very different. They decide to cast three of their electoral votes. The electors do. They, they decide, three electors decide to cast their votes to Charles Coatsworth Pinckney. And believe it or not, one vote went to John Jay, who was a former Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Is it fair to say that Rhode Island split could have some form of negative implication given that the Electoral College is the one that um, chooses or elects the president. Based, because remember, yes, there is a popular vote, but it's the Electoral College that, that determines the winner of the, um, elect, the presidential elections. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that Rhode Island, Rhode Island may not be the only state where there could be uh, some issues now, but it's one of a handful of states. It's, it, I think it's fair to say that Rhode Island is one of a select few states, rather, I should say, that could um, uh, make or break uh, who emerges as, a, as the uh, winner, given that both Jefferson and Adams each have won six states all out, uncontested. All right, now part three of this question. 
Did Thomas Jefferson and John Adams receive electoral votes in states where no clear winner emerged? Yes. In three states, being Pennsylvania, Maryland, and North Carolina, no clear winner emerged in terms of uh, one candidate winning the elect all the of the electoral votes for each of those states. In Pennsylvania, there were a total of 15 electoral votes. Thomas Jefferson got eight of those votes, John Adams seven. In Maryland, both men each got five electoral votes apiece. What I found interesting was that four years earlier in 1796, John Adams got seven, Thomas Jefferson got three. And in North Carolina, Thomas Jefferson got eight electoral votes to Adams's four. So if you do the math right here, uh, Jefferson got um, Jefferson got twenty-one more electoral votes. John Adams got sixteen uh, votes. It's fair to say John Adams, yes, he got uh, actually he got eleven. Uh, he got, uh, yes, about 16 votes, rather, I should say. However, um, let's find out some other stuff here. Did um, backup Federalist candidate, this is question, part four of this question, did backup Federalist candidate Charles Coatsworth Pinckney receive a fair share of electoral votes? Yes, he did. Charles Coatsworth Pinckney won a total of 64. So it just goes to show you how close, uh, when electors are choosing two candidates, just how close the electoral votes are for each man, not knowing who could come away as a clear, concise winner. What's interesting for Charles Coatsworth Pinckney is that he won the same six states all out as John Adams had done, being Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire, New Jersey, and Delaware. And like Adams, uh, Pinckney himself received five electoral votes in Maryland, as well as four in North Carolina. And one Federalist elector in Rhode Island withheld his vote for Pinckney and was the one that ended up choosing um, or nominating John Jay. Just think, if, um, if this Federalist elector in Rhode Island had chosen to go with uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, is it possible that maybe John Adams and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney might have um, tied on their end? Possibly, yes. Well, I'll have to admit, those are all the question. those are all the parts to that question. <laughs> Pretty lengthy, to say the least, but, uh, but nonetheless, it's good to do a little math and to find out um, where, what these electors are up to. After all, they are independent. I mean, nobody, I mean, how do I say it? Um, they are independent based upon their, uh, the choices they make as to whom they want um, to, um, as to whom they are going to vote for, given that they have up to uh, two choices. But, of course, each state has its own method for choosing these uh, electors, whether it's by popular vote or the state legislature uh, choosing them. Had Federalist Party 
performed well in rural areas before and going into the 1800 election? Uh, no. Those whom lived in rural areas weren't major supporters behind strong central government. That, that's a no-brainer right there. And therefore identified themselves as Jeffersonian Republicans, whom championed unlimited restrictions behind freedom of press, separation of church and state, freedom of religion, and uh, wanting less um, government intrusion. So yes, it is fair to say that those who live in rural areas are, would be very skeptical of big government. They would be very skeptical of wanting those of um, high-end wealthy status being the only ones uh, running the show, meaning the government. And they would not like the fact that if, um, that if the Federalists remained in power, that they would um, restrict uh, freedom of press, that they would um, be all inclined to establish um, uh, churches, uh, not just establish churches, but have it be uh, maintained to where church and state uh, were bonded together. In other words, these people, those living in rural areas do not want church and state interfering in one another's um, affairs. Was John Adams uh, one whom uh, went by many fundamental uh, Federalist ideals? Well, let me ask you this. Do you think John Adams was an extremist? I don't think he was. So therefore, in my opinion, he wasn't what we would consider an ultra-federalist. To me, an ultra-federalist was one who believed that government was only confined to the privilege, a.k.a. few, wealthy, well-educated, running the government. John Adams uh, didn't live in a fancy dwelling or require all things top of the line. So it's fair to say that John Adams was a moderate Federalist. He was a middle-of-the-road guy who managed to survive or get by with a salary that was provided, a salary that he knew he could uh, live off of and not exceed his, um, what do you call it, expenditures, that is, his daily um, budget. So basically, John Adams is a very frugal man. And hey, there's nothing wrong with uh, fru being frugal. I mean, yes, John Adams probably would not, probably did um, entertain, but did he entertain on the same level as Thomas Jefferson? No. So John Adams did get by uh, with personal investments as well. So hey, you know, you know, we we all, how do we say it? We all kind of face uh, challenges at times in terms of how we're going to get by as in. That's when we have to decide, okay, what is it that we can learn to live with or what we know we need to live with, but at the same time, what is it that we can learn to live without? And John Adams has um, firmly established in his uh, philosophy of knowing what is important to have and what is important to not have. So, yes, uh, John Adams was a moderate Federalist, and if you ask me, I just I, I personally believe that he... Um, that yes, Adams was respected by those in his party, being of the moderate wing, like John Marshall, uh, to name a few. 
but at the same time, there unfortunately there were too many uh, firebirds in his party who um, did not appreciate him 100% all the way through. And when you have um, a big splinter, like what the Federalists are having going into this election, I think it's fair to say that at some point it will backfire on them. I mean, I think it already has, but if John Adams does not come away as the winner, Adams does have reason to believe and he has a reason to um, say that, hey, my party had too many factions and therefore because the splinters were not um, fixed, we lost this election because we weren't a well-unified party like the opposition was. So um, we're forgetting one other uh, candidate. Wasn't that Aaron Burr? Yes, we did forget Aaron Burr, but I didn't forget about him intentionally. But I figured why not talk about him now because um, this is important. Uh, where did Aaron Burr stand with regards to electoral votes, given he was candidate number two on the Republican presidential ballot ticket? All right, let's uh, find out here. For one, uh, Burr himself performed extremely well, just like Jefferson had done in getting the vote out where Republicans hadn't done so well four years earlier from 1796. You know, in 1796, for example, they lost in uh, New York. So Aaron, and Aaron Burr was a candidate in 1796. He finished fourth, but going into 1800, Thomas Jefferson, you know, told him, hey, look, what I need for you to do is uh, is to go into New York, and I need you to be able to find a way to uh, reinvigorate our party. In other words, try to find, try to do whatever it is you can to mobilize those whom were either one-time Federalists, and get them to realize that hey, the Federalists are not the um, the wave of the future; they are more inclined with the old whereas the Jeffersonian Republicans are in with the new. So Aaron Burr's networking in New York uh, did, pay, um, did pay significant dividends, knowing that come uh, spring of 1800, uh, Republicans in New York won uh, both houses of New York State Assembly. So yes, um, Aaron Burr did perform extremely well when it came to getting the vote out where um, the party had not done well four years earlier. But secondly, it turns out, folks, that Aaron Burr won the same number of electoral votes from the six states that Thomas Jefferson himself had won, had won entirely out, being New York, Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, Kentucky, and Tennessee, meaning that Burr and Jefferson each had 52 electoral votes, won all out, uncontested. Third, like Jefferson, electors from Pennsylvania, Maryland, and North Carolina had given Burr 21 more electoral votes. And the electors split their votes on party allegiances. Is it, uh, can we come to this conclusion, folks, that Republican presidential candidates of Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr each got 73 electoral votes? Yes. So if they each got 73 electoral votes, does that mean that there's a deadlock? Yes. Does it mean that there's no clear winner? 
does it mean, or rather I should say, does it mean that no clear winner has emerged from the contest? Yes. All right, well, let's do some what-if scenarios here. How many um, electoral votes were there in South Carolina up for grab? There were eight. Okay, uh, how many electoral votes did John Adams have? Does anybody want to take a guess? I'll give you a number. It's between um, 60 and 68. The answer is 65. Okay. If South Carolina's eight electors had voted instead for John Adams, would John Adams have won the presidency? True or false? True. Okay, you subtract uh, 73 from 8, that's 65. So let's say that those eight electors went with John Adams. John Adams already had 65. He had 45 electoral votes that he won all out and, uh, from the states of New Hampshire, New Jersey, Delaware, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut. He got seven uh, votes in um, Pennsylvania. He got five in Maryland and four in North Carolina, 61. He also got four in Rhode Island, which, you know, makes 65 total. But let's, um, let's just do a reversal here. Let's say that the, that the uh, electors in South Carolina didn't go with Jefferson or Burr, but instead gave the eight votes to John Adams. 65 plus 8, 73. 73 minus 8, 65. Adams would have been your winner. Another what-if scenario that could have played about was New York. 12 electoral votes. All right, let's say John Adams was the clear winner. 65 plus 12, 77. 71 was the uh, magic number of electoral votes in 1800 for a candidate uh, to have won. To have won the presidency. Okay, 73 minus 12, 61. So... That's another what if right there. So basically, that's twenty elect. That's twenty electoral votes that went to both Jefferson and Burr. And of course, those twenty votes also helped contribute to the deadlock over both of both men each getting seventy-three electoral votes apiece. Isn't it amazing what the numbers themselves can do? That either make or break who wins an election. But it is fair to point out that Abigail Adams, John Adams's wife, knew firsthand that the debacle in New York from May, back from May of 1800, in the end came back and, um, and it backfired on her husband. I mean, think about it. He knew that, uh, I think it's fair to say that even John Adams himself knew that when New York um, fell out of Federalist hands in May of 1800, and given how the state um, selected its, uh, went about conducting its procedures for, um, for uh, what do you call it, for uh, choosing the electors, Adams knew that without New York, that it was going to be a, a rough road in terms of uh, making up for a, a loss of 12 electoral votes. So, yes, Adams, along with his wife, knew that the New York debacle would come back in the long run come December, considering how badly Federalists got routed in those uh, state elections, most notably in New York City and Manhattan. So, all it takes is like one, one um, bad stroke of misfortune, and if a party can't recover in enough time, 
you know, that one stroke of misfortune in the end can have some ramifications that are not for the better. But did the Federalist defeats in New York and South Carolina hurt the Federalist um, Party um, from within during the 1800 election? Actually, it did not. But what it really boiled down to, it was those factions. Those factions. You know, remember George Washington in his farewell address warned about the dangers of political parties, most notably factions from within the parties themselves that could bring, could, that could result in their own ultimate demise, undoing. So factions within the Federalist Party as a whole contributed to John Adams's inabilities behind getting reelected. If there was one person that I could blame uh, for hurting John Adams, he not only hurt John Adams, but he hurt himself. <laughs> it's, it's really a no-brainer, but I'm going to mention his name. It's none other than Mr. Alexander Hamilton, who had really become, in my opinion, the thorn in many people's um, sides. Not just Thomas Jefferson's, but really to people in his own party like John Marshall uh, and, of course, to Mr. John Adams. Alexander Hamilton, in my opinion, was the primary person in the Federalist Party who contributed to many problems, most notably smearing President John Adams for being an ineffective commander-in-chief, along with allowing Adams's own cabinet members of Oliver Wolcott Timothy Pickering and James McHenry to go behind their boss's back, being that of the president, and share sensitive information with non with a non-cabinet person, being none other than Mr. Hamilton. I mean, it's one thing to have you know a disagreement with your boss, but is it appropriate to go behind your boss's back and stab him and go share information with someone who's not even in the cabinet, share information with someone whom, yes, may have a lot at stake politics-wise, but simply does not, um, but but does not have a seat in the uh, cabinet. No, it's not right to do. It's um, it's really a breach of confidentiality. It's uh, it's unethical. But of course, <laughs> you know, doesn't make it right. But people do that stuff in today's time. It's a dirty uh, practice, uh, but sadly it goes on. Alexander Hamilton uh, represented a side of the Federalist Party that focused on on individual needs, or it had that individual mentality of I, me, myself, whereas John Adams tried his best to stress unity within the party, and unity uh, that did not center around any hardcore mottos or ideals behind um, being the party that catered to the wealthy, the few, and the elite for Adams. Unity had to be around the following. Us, we, ourselves, regardless of rank and status. At this point, it's got to be about us we ourselves, but sadly it may have come a little too late. Can we blame John Adams for that? No, I mean, he did He did what he had to do uh, prior to uh, election time. He did uh, clean up his cabinet. He removed Timothy Pickering and James McHenry. 
But sadly, it was Alexander Hamilton who, um, in my opinion, is the true culprit behind um, behind what has already happened now in this election. Hamilton is seen as a man of personal insecurities, whom never could fully respect another man's qualities, regardless of his party affiliation. Hamilton always acted as if he had been a victim, and this could be attributed to the circumstances of his personal past, given that his childhood was unpleasant, and I could see where he may have felt like that victim mentality had carried over as an adult. However, Alexander Hamilton was one of those individuals who always wanted to be ahead. He wanted to be ahead of others, and that meant being in control. But sadly, he didn't have any, he didn't uh, understand the boundaries. In other words, he was constantly trying to, um, trying to, um, do something or engage in um, something that maybe was not, maybe that in the long run was not supposed to be um, meant to be. You know, we sometimes it's easy in life to say, gee, I wish I could do this or that. And while, yes, there are opportunities, we also should ask ourselves, hey, is this somewhere where we truly belong or if we were to get into a particular school um, of higher learning, are, are we going to fit in? Uh, long story short of it, I, I remember years ago how much I wished I had what it took to get into the University of Virginia, and I've grown up with that university all of my life. It's been a second school, and whenever I walk the grounds at Charlottesville, I, I can say that I do feel like I am a student at Mr. Jefferson's Academical Village, but... Um, Long story short of it, I realized that um, I didn't have the SAT scores to get in, but I also realized that I still had an opportunity to go to college, and uh, I went to a small uh, liberal arts college in uh, Virginia's Shenandoah Valley, uh, known as uh, Bridgewater College. And I know not long ago the uh, college had an unfortunate uh, tragedy where um, their security off the security officers lost their lives. But thank, I mean, as tragic as that was, thank, I'm very thankful that no student lost their life or a faculty member. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a great college. And what do you know, uh, Bridgewater's um, founder, Daniel Christian Flory, was a UVA graduate. Bridgewater and the University of Virginia do have some uh, unique connections. So I wouldn't have traded my time at Bridgewater, but I also realized that I did accomplish a lot that maybe I might not have been able to have accomplished in a larger school setting. But there again, uh, whenever I walk the grounds at the University of Virginia or visit Charlottesville, I know that uh, the that university will always be my second school. So the bottom line is, is that it's okay to have some limits, but just know that there are still other opportunities out there. Uh, that's the most important thing. Did many states uh, undergo uh, transformations based upon uh, congressional elections in 1800? Of course, here we've been talking this whole time about this soon-to-be presidential election that's now taken place, but at the same time, there are congressional elections as well. So did many states undergo transformations based upon congressional elections in 1800? The answer is yes. 
Pennsylvania in 1800 saw Republicans capture 10 of the state's 13 congressional seats, as well as three-fourths of the state assembly seats. Ironically, uh, for New Jersey, which was a state that John Adams won, the Federalist uh, congressional vote went from a high of 65% in 1796 to a to 49% in 1800, meaning it, there was a 16% decline over four years. So it's fair to say that uh, that Jeffersonian Republicans did make some strongholds in New Jersey, even though uh, Jefferson nor Burr uh, carried uh, New Jersey. In 1798, Federalists won seven of 19 seats in Virginia's congressional delegation, but only gained one come 1800. Prior to 1800, uh, Federalists dominated in the Carolinas, but after 1800, the party no longer had um, solid majorities or had solid majority seat um, in each of the, the states. So it's amazing sometimes what can happen within a four or an eight year span. That's the, um, I don't know if, I, if it's a good thing, but that's the uh, the, na the nature of the game with uh, politics. You know, you you ride um, one way for about eight, eight years with one party, and then it's with another party for maybe another eight years, depending on the overall uh, flow of dynamics. How long had uh, Federalists controlled both houses of Congress prior to 1800? Well, you got to go back to 1794. The party had uh, maintained the Federalist Party had maintained a 10 to 12 seat majority in the past uh, three elections in the House of Representatives. But all that changes in 1800. Is it fair to say that a revolution has taken place? Yes. But it won't be the last revolution in terms of a political revolution because America has seen uh, many unique uh, political revolutions, but what's happened in 1800 probably might be considered the first true political revolution of its time, uh, given that the um, Repub America's Republic is um, just shy of uh, being, um, it's not 15 years of old just yet, but it's just over 10 years old, uh, given that uh, we have to go back to 1789 when George Washington was sworn in as America's first president, as well as when the first Congress um, conducted its uh, business. But in 1800, Jeffersonian Republicans won House of Representatives with a large majority, winning 69 seats to 36 for the Federalists. They won the Senate as well with 18 seats to the Federalists' 13. Here's some other interesting information that you all will find uh, worth knowing. The 1800 election saw Republicans pick up seats in urban settings. I thought urban settings were confined to the Federalists. Well, they were, but prior to 1800 and after, urban populations had grown by one-third, meaning about 33%. Kentucky and Tennessee were the westernmost states in the Union, and all congressional seats and, all, and uh, rather, I should say, all the congressional seats in those two states were in the hands of Republicans. Not to get too far ahead of, of the game, but I should just point out this. 
that after 1800, within the next uh, 25 years, there would be eight more states added to the Union, but only one state would get added to the eastern United States. Do you want to know what state that was? It was Maine. That was part of the uh, Missouri Compromise of 1820, where Maine would get admitted to the Union as a free state, and Missouri was admitted as a slave state. But Massachusetts uh, basically ceded that territory to where um, it freed up, um, where it was freed up to where Maine became its own state separate of Massachusetts. Then you have seven states from western territories west of the Appalachian Mountains. And seven states, those seven states, didn't, didn't have any Federalist ties. When I think of states uh, west of the Appalachians, how about Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri? And then I think of three other states um, west of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. It's pretty revolutionary, to say the least. The 1800 election saw Republicans win uh, four out of five states where electors got chosen by popular vote. And it is fair to say that popular vote was very, very influential. Although John Adams and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney were defeated, we still have a dilemma on our hands here, folks. Both Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr were tied with 73 electoral votes apiece. The other issue at stake here is that uh, the Republicans in the House around December of 1800 don't have enough votes to choose either Jefferson or Burr, considering that they are in the minority. The Federalists still have the upper hand. So in other words, yes, uh, the Jefferson, Jeffersonian Republicans won both houses of Congress, but the problem is that a new session of Congress will not begin until March of 1801. So the dilemma before Congress now is that they've got to uh, determine who's going to be the next president because it's not going to be John Adams, but it's either going to be Thomas Jefferson or Aaron Burr. Well, uh, that concludes this uh, podcast segment um, for um, today. Of course, for some of you, it already might be uh, Wednesday, wherever you all are uh, living in the world. But thank you for your time, as always, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn about how the House of Representatives is going to uh, resolve this matter. We would certainly hope that it would only take um, a few tries to break the deadlock. But at the same time, we could be in for some surprises, meaning that um, sometimes things don't go as smoothly as they ought to. Is it fair to say that there could be some partisanship in determining who is going to be the new president? Is that partisanship going to be along party lines? Maybe and maybe not. Is it fair to say that there could be some from one party who might um, choose Jefferson? Is it fair to say that there are some who could choose Burr? Yes. Well, when I'm on the air again next, hopefully we will uh, just, we will find out whom, in fact, will come away as the winner um, from within the Jeffersonian Republican ticket as the real winner 
of the um, of this election. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. Uh, stay safe uh, to all of you, uh, wherever you may live in the world. Uh, thank you again, um, as always. Later for now.